0: a lively educational and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who, who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argore, a.k.a. your host, uh, without my co-host, DeWyla Jones, this evening from Imagine Publicity. uh, uh Uh, coming to you um, uh, in order to present uh, enlightenment, awareness, education, and hopefully entertainment this Saturday and every Saturday evening uh, on issues primarily surrounding the aftermath of crime. So I want to welcome all of my national audience, both um, veterans and new people, and uh, it's a uh, lovely uh, Saturday evening here in Connecticut And I'm here to tell you I'm flying solo, so be patient with me. Hopefully everything will go smoothly. And we want to say we we miss you, Jelilah, and hopefully you are uh, enjoying yourself, relaxing, uh, and then back at it next week. Um, And you can listen later. So uh, I have three guests with me this evening. Um, Our show kind of evolved. Uh, um, First we started out with – Attorney and stellar advocate Michelle S. Cruz that we all are very familiar with used to be the constitutional victim advocate for the state of Connecticut and has now been in private practice. And
1: I believe, Michelle, you had your two-year anniversary. Is that right? Yes, two-year years 2 year anniversary. Very good. Congratulations, congratulations. Thank you. Um,
0: a milestone for you. And then we also have Jessica N- Norton-Pisano who we have had on um, previously, who has been the advocate. And, Jessica, you'll have to fill me in on how many years now doing your stellar work for Survivors of Homicide, Inc. Uh, of Connecticut, the stellar nonprofit. How long have you been with them, um, Jessica? Almost nine years
2: I've been with them.
0: Nine years? Holy smokes. Well, nine years. That's, that's quite a milestone. And, you know, I have to say I was, I was very um, – fortunate to be one of the founding members of uh, Survivors of Homicide in the early 80s and back in the days of Gary Merton's presidency and had a very big role then. And I'm very glad to have a different kind of affiliation now, but they're always very close to my heart and they're very supportive of, of uh, um, what I do and Shattered Life as well. So thank you. Thank you, um, Eska. I appreciate everything that you do for um, crime victims in Connecticut And then my third guest here Who I just met a couple of days ago And I'm very excited Because um, this man is a gem um, Matthew Ak- Katania, Who is the chief of police Of Plainville And yes. Um, yes And good evening And thank you so much For being on Shattered Life as well You're, it, It's such a pleasure to have you
3: Thank you for having me, Donna. It's a pleasure. Um, you are You Thank are you.
0: so welcome. Um, it is um, well, the the reason that we we all are are here this evening, gathered here this evening. And no, it's not a wedding, but we are here. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> it's this, this is a fun show. Even though we talk about crime, we still have fun. Um, you know, my, my co-host will attest to that. Uh, we are here to talk about a very unique and unusual, um, innovative um, occurrence in Connecticut. Um, I was very, very fortunate to have the, the skills of Michelle when we went through the uh, parole hearing for the perpetrator of my father's um, killing, um, a couple of years ago, and had I not had her, it might have been a very different outcome. So, so she, you know, she's in my heart forever. Um, tonight, we are going to talk about the very unusual circumstance of, um, of a, a, a police officer, Robert Holcomb, who was killed on November twenty first, nineteen seventy seven, and the perpetrator, Eric Castagney. Um, it was a career criminal, and that's somebody I want to spend a lot of breath on but it's was suffice, suffice it to say this this man um tried to commit um a, a burglary um during that time and um unfortunately um Officer Holcomb paid the ultimate price in that um they fired multiple shots, and he was killed isn't isn't that right Matt?
3: Yes, I I think what's uh, most alarming is the way that uh, the murderer uh, executed Officer Holcomb. Uh, He had wounded Officer Holcomb and uh, while Officer Holcomb was down and incapacitated, but yet very much alive. uh, The killer walked over to him and executed him at uh, point-blank range with approximately three more rounds uh, into his torso. It was uh, quite horrific.
0: Wow. And... um the, the Plainville connection is that Officer Holcomb was from Plainville, isn't that is that right? And he and he served in right. Plainville, is that true?
3: Right, right. Uh, not only uh, Plainville police officer for about five years when he was uh, murdered, but he was a uh, Vietnam vet. He successfully completed two tours in Vietnam. United States Marine, uh, just a fit, very active, very bright, intelligent police officer uh, with a lot of drive and a lot of energy and. and I think ultimately that's how uh he ended up in this situation. He was a go get him kind of guy, and he chased these two perpetrators down and uh the murderer turned turned around and fired a shot to incapacitate him um but uh, by all accounts, and I didn't know Robert personally, but I know of him. I know who he is, and I know uh, what it is about him that's in uh, all good police officers, and he's the type of guy that was going to uh, do his job. House was being burglarized. They fled. He chased, and uh, he would have captured one or both of those guys.
0: Wow. Yeah, just somebody doing doing his duty, and um, I, I wanted to ask, uh, Michelle, is this, is this case a case in which um, the perpetrator should never have been eligible for parole because of his 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 long record, or or was he?
1: Well, was I, he guess, eligible I mean, by it,
0: all accounts,
1: I mean from I think he was sentenced under the old statutes that allowed mm-hmm. for him to have parole, kind of like your father's case, where similar you to know, my, should, case, my case. Yes, should he have been ever up for parole? Absolutely no. But did the system mm-hmm. allow for it? It did. And um you know, that is the unfortunate reality of some of these cases that come down the pike.
0: Yeah, um, sure. So he he was sentenced under under the old laws as in my, my dad's case, and that's that's horrific. Um, before we get into the meat of that, can let's get a little bit of a backdrop in terms of what maybe we deal with in general in Connecticut with regard to Jessica, what what you do um to help victim families when uh, they
2: do have to go to the parole hearing. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? yeah of course I can um you know typically families do get notification uh, before a parole hearing happens. typically it's about a month give or take a little bit um they will get a letter in the mail, letting them know that their offender is coming up for a hearing and part of uh, what I do with survivors of homicide is I can help the families put together statements um very similar to victim impact statements that are read when someone is sentenced It's a very similar kind of letter um it just kind of talks about how the crime has affected their life and, you know, the family's thoughts and opinions on whether or not this person should be released or should not be released from prison. Um, and, it, and it depends on circumstances and cases. Sometimes Families want a person released, but oftentimes they don't want that person released. So my goal is just to make sure that their feelings are put on the record during that hearing, um, and then, unfortunately, after that, the decision's out of their hands, but at least this way they know that they can say something in the process.
0: Mm-hmm. And how how many people approximately have you gone through the process with? Or do you have an estimate? How many people you've helped over nine years?
2: That's an interesting um question actually. Probably I mean, I'll be very honest, it's not something that I encounter very often, um, because when you're working with homicides, you you don't often see people become eligible until a very extensive period of time. Um, the few cases right. that I have worked with, I'll be honest, there are cases that were in the sixties and seventies. Um mm-hmm. and I think that because of the old sentencing, and because the cases are old, I think we're starting to maybe see some glitches in the way that the system was, and and we're trying to catch up with that now. Um, But I have um, been involved with some newer cases where people weren't necessarily sentenced under homicide, um, maybe accessory, maybe criminally negligent, and I've attended a few hearings like that where people were eligible because it wasn't a, a technical murder case. Mm-hmm, I see.
0: Well, uh, maybe in a little bit we'd like to. I know that you you, you sit on a commission that deals with um, policy changes uh, with regard to victims, and I know you're going to make some recommendations to our governor. But perhaps we can get into that um, in a little bit. Let's. Sure. And I know uh, you you were you were not in in the room during the parole hearing, right, Jessica? For that, no, they, I was not. They limited it to uh, what about? A uh, hundred, a hundred people, and in, in the room was packed. Is that right, Matt? Were you, you were there, right?
3: Yes, that's correct. I was, I was sitting there with the family and uh, my colleagues, my officers from Plainville, and officers from around Connecticut, as well as former officers. And there was probably a hundred, a little more than a hundred uh, people in the audience there.
0: And they, but they turned people away. I believe is not that right, Jessica,
3: or what you heard? <laughs> You know, oh,
0: there yeah. too I mean, many there people
2: of... that wanted to get in. <laughs> yeah, there are right. actually a lot of people outside. Um there were areas set up for so that people can provide support to the families. Um yes. we did have some people from the membership go just to try to provide support and just to show that you know they were thinking of the family during this time. Right. Well that's great. Well, let's let's
0: get into um first of all, what makes this case so unusual? How often and, he, he, Michelle maybe you want to address this. How often does it happen that a parole um a parole well the the word verdict isn't correct I guess you know better. A decision, the parole decision
1: gets reversed. How how often I, does I would that say happen? it's it's I would say it's completely absolutely unheard of because Really? I mean yeah because what how many cases have you ever heard where the The parole board is challenged for not giving notification to the victim. There's so much um, outcry that the parole board mm-hmm. rescinds their original decision and then does a redo. I mean, that, in, in my years, I have not heard that. And I just want to say two things while they're on my brain because I'll forget. One is the one-month notification. I know, Donna, you and I have talked about this that is completely insufficient. And Mm -hmm. I also think that the reason why we don't hear from a lot of victims from these older murder cases is because this case is kind of illustrative that their, you know, notification back then didn't even exist, right? Mm -hmm. So then people have been trying to get um, merged into the system. So I'm sure there are other cases. I, I bet if we did like a one-year case study, we would find other cases where there were no victims notified, but then if we did, we picked up maybe a phone book or the Internet or called people, we would find that there were victims or family members, victims surviving family members who would have liked to have known, but had no clue.
0: I totally agree with you. We could probably contrive a whole list so, so that that is that is true, and the fact that this is so unusual, um, you know, what um, let, let's talk about what notification is and and what what it truly is the way it stands, and, and maybe what it should be, and then we'll get into uh, the specifics of Matt what what actually happened during the parole hearing, and and how you were notified after that. But let's talk specifically about what happens during the notification process and what what you'd like to see, Michelle, in, in the future, that kind of thing. And what does the community think now, or what, what do they expect?
1: I You know what I think? The, ex- the expectation is a live, warm body is going to call them, and they're going to have a reasonable amount of notification, not, you know, 30 days. Um and they're going to have an opportunity to be heard in a meaningful way. And, you know, getting a letter, I mean, I just, I got to say, I mean, there's, and then the, the, there's there's the whole opt-in, opt-out. I mean, is an opt-in system. So unless you opt in for notification, which didn't exist a couple decades ago, you're not going to get notification. In Massachusetts, it's a opt-out system. You pick the level to which you wanna be involved, and you have to physically opt out of notification and um
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and a lot of times there's i mean there's definitely an expectation from the community that a that a person's gonna call them, let them know what's gonna happen, and um and they're gonna get notified of these important events um that occur with the offender that had harmed them or their family member um, right.
0: Well, what about notification? I mean,
1: there's another kind of notification.
0: There's death notifications. Matt, when somebody somebody dies, you as a police officer go go physically to the home, right? Correct.
3: Correct. We have a whole uh, statewide protocol for that.
0: Okay. Would would I'm just throwing this out there? Um, would a, a crime victim prefer having a person come? And do a home visit to to tell somebody some news like that, versus maybe they think just a mere phone call is too cold or too too rushed or too uh, whatever. What do you What do you think? Do you think there's a place for personal notifications, or would they say, "Oh, we just don't have time. We don't have the manpower. We don't need the transportation," whatever?
3: Is that for me, Donna? Anybody? Uh, well, for me, just for what my money involved in my frame of reference is this very poor way that it was done in the uh, casting way incident so anything would have yeah. been better than what we experienced with that incident
1: right and i think that i think that the opting, the the decision to how you want to receive notification do you want a call do you want a letter do you want someone to come over like those kind of, having like having control, You could make choices mhm yeah, having control over how you are reminded of this. Yeah. And I'm just going to be frank. I can be frank for the day. Of this monster who caused your family harm, how you want to be reminded of that incident is really important to the victim. Some people don't right. want, would it, like if they were, if they knew that someone was coming to their house to tell them, they may not want that. They I, I may want see. the phone call. It, it, it really needs to be up to the victim as to, and the family members, right. as to how they That's wish beautiful. to. To have this information delivered, yeah, I agree with
2: that do you agree with that Jessica I mean, yeah and, software, you know, we actually
1: have,
2: yeah and and it's funny we, with uh one of the cool things about Savin is the way the program's put together is it has so much capability to do so much stuff. It just depends on how much money the state wants to put into it, and that's the problem. Um, I mean, I think right now it has different options of how you want to be notified. Right now, I believe it's um, you know telephone. It could be email. I don't see what the problem would be putting another option. Would you rather be notified in person? Just put another box in there. Um, somebody's already correlating these numbers. Um, you know, just just a, uh, just a thought in my head. You know, it's not something mm-hmm. that I think is impossible to do. Right, and
0: and the fact that we we um, this horrendous case and event occurred has has to do with the the issue of registering victims in general. And I know Michelle, uh, we talked about this at length in terms of how this should be a priority for not only the state of Connecticut but everyone and. What um I mean, I know when, when you were the constitutional advocate, you you made certain efforts to make that happen. Can you describe what what you did and what happened and what you think
1: the, the push or the promotion should be in the future in terms of registration? Well, I, don't, I can tell you, I don't know if it's been it's they've improved, but when I was a state victim advocate I remember I remember learning that all these victims had it received notification about important updates about the offender's status. And um, so I had pushed for a notification registration campaign where we'd put letters and notices and flyers up at the courthouses and put um, like letters and notices up at the various state buildings. And, um, and I created this flyer that says... Um, have you, are you a crime victim? Have you registered? Do you know what registration is? You know, in, in order to be notified of important updates, blah blah blah, you have to, you know, do these, take these steps. And I approached judicial, and I was told I was not allowed to put up those notices in the courthouses. And so I kind of, you know, I kind of got the impression that um, there was, you know, resistance. And I, I hope that resistance is gone. But the truth of the matter is. Victims need to know about registration. They need to know how to do it. And if it's an opt-out system, we need to make it clear. If it's an opt-in system, we need to make it clear how they can opt in. And um, there should be a statewide camp- campaign. Because you ask a victim, you ask any victim, ten victims in a row, do you know what registration is? I would say a third to maybe half might know what you're talking about, if that, and then being, you know, Yep. Right, because it hasn't been. A lot of them side. have. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are like, "What register to vote? Register for the military? Like, what are you talking about?" <laughs> so making sure that <laughs> yeah, they know right. and that there's a there's mm-hmm. a campaign, just like we do seatbelt campaigns, just like we do all these other campaigns, it needs to be like we need to paper the state with information so that it's it's common knowledge for everybody. You know. Oh, I I so agree with you. I I think that would be you know that. Well, it
0: it would also in, increase workload, but I mean, t- to us in, in 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 a good way because people really do need to know, and these older cases, some of those people would come out of the woodwork, you know, or, or word would filter down or whatnot. So, um, you know, I only hope that we can we can get some of these ideas to segue and just to let everybody know, I just finished a new blog on victim impact. Statements and I, I analyzed a packet. I just took one of the states. I took Texas, and I went through the whole thing and I described what what is in there and what is missing. And what is missing is part of what I do for my victim impact writing service. If anyone listening does not know, um, I have a customized service that I do for people. But I would I would urge you to go to. This, Donagore.com, and on my homepage you see a big star of Texas and that is the latest blog and it has to do with analyzing a victim impact packet that you may get and um, you know and I was surprised there's nothing in there about a photo uh there is there's nothing in there about actually telling about the victim personally. So in any case, um that was I'm sorry, that was just my little commercial. <laughs> now we'll get to now Now we'll, oh and I do have uh Jessica, I wanna do a commercial about this SOH golf tournament. Please remind me before we go off the air too, because I wanna <laughs> emphasize okay. that. So anyway, da, da, da. <laughs> Moving right along. Um so uh, I just I do think that victim registration is a neglected topic. I would, you know, I feel like going to work on Monday and calling up the new victim advocate and just trying to talk her into something. We'll, we'll see if I if I decide to do that. But in any case, let's get back to the meat of the matter with regard to this situation with the Holcomb family. Matt, um, you told me this extremely compelling story Uh, first of all maybe we should backtrack and say you were a a direct participant sitting with the families can you do a little bit of a play-by-play in terms of what was it like um, dealing with that family sitting next to them what went on in the parole hearing and then what happened in the what this show is all about, about ladies and gentlemen the aftermath because that's very compelling
3: so but, Matt, you have uh, your assignment. <laughs> okay, very good. Very, very emotional. Uh I had never been through uh any type of involvement in a parole case whatsoever. Uh and I've been a police okay. officer almost thirty four years. Uh the room the room was just very, very tense. You could feel the family's emotion and I have to tell you it was uh it was very um Disturbing to see the killer come into the room and have the family in such close proximity to them, and really not knowing how this was all going to turn out, and uh, you could just see the stress on the family 's face but one of the things that i I found so uh, inspiring and so impressive is when uh, the slain officer 's son Mac Holcomb got up to speak, and he had such poise, and, and was so direct, and looked right at the killer, and, and spoke these very, very heartfelt words of how he was left without a, a father. And I, I have to tell you, I don't, I don't know that there was anyone in the room uh, that didn't have tears welling up in their eyes. So very emotional. Yeah. Lots of stress.
0: I did. I uh and I will let people know that I, I did put it up. I did see it on C T N the Public Affairs channel. I will post it after the show if people would like to see it in its entirety because it was it was very uh moving. It was a very moving um um impact statement that he gave. He and he was very poised. I was like incredibly imp- impressed with this young man. Um, yes. so anyway, so yeah, so that's with, now, what was the demeanor of the perpetrator, and what happened uh what happened in terms of the you know kind of give and take of of the interactions and and what went on and the exchanges
3: well, if you see the um uh, as you see on the video uh, when he walks into the room, he looks to the left at them and uh, the uh, parole board and the uh prison. Upper echelon, the administration there and i and I have to say the the warden uh Carol Chalain was so uh accommodating to us and so good to us, and really uh from the very beginning reached out to me, extended an olive branch to uh the police officers and law enforcement uh members that would be in attendance, so we were a little nervous about even being there because again we're fish out of water with this we're walking into a secured facility. Uh are stripped of everything that you have with you that you normally carry on your uh duty belt uh, it's just it's just out of the ordinary for us to be in that situation where you know we're told where to go where to sit how to conduct ourselves and uh one of the things that I was very pleased with the Welcome warden was she allowed my right. officer to stand <laughs> yes yeah, yes exactly uh-huh. she uh she allowed us to stand at the back of the room and when the uh the killer came into the room, he did a head check to his left. And saw forty or fifty, uh, you know, uniformed police officers in the room, and I, I think that made a significant statement without saying a word.
0: That was a that's a lot of police, a police presence. Was that was that planned because of of this hearing, or because he was such a a heinous criminal, or or what?
3: Well, first of all, was, was he a volatile all, because person? Because Roberts a member of. Well, Robert's a member of the Plainville family, so okay. almost every Plainville police officer showed. Obviously, we had to, you know, uh, cover the uh, the business at hand back in Plainville. Right. But uh, every uniformed police officer wanted to go, and uniformed police officers from the area, Farmington and other towns, uh, Bristol, uh, they were in attendance, and, and actually, we couldn't get everyone in the room that wanted to be there. And basically, the police were looking to, you know, have their say to be able to say you murdered one of us uh, in the mm. heinous way that he murdered one of us. Uh, really, really, I thought I think brought out a lot more uh, participation. Mm-hmm.
0: Did he have family there, the perpetrator?
3: Not that I know of. I, I could not. I could not uh, single anyone out. I had heard. Uh, through others talking that there might have been a family member there, but uh, I, I couldn't tell you, Donna, for certain. I, I yeah. don't believe yeah. it did, to okay. be honest Right.
0: Now, in terms of um, – now, I, I don't know if you know specifically, Michelle or Matt, you can address this, but what um, – in getting prepared, I put up our show that we did, Michelle from South Carolina, in terms of getting prepared for a parole hearing, but what – what what typically happens with regard to the to the interactions and the, the the uh the perpetrator gets to answer questions but then they get to do their own extemporaneous statement is that right yeah tell us about I that. Mean, I don't know about
1: the I don't know about the one this one um yep but that's usually what happens that's usually it's what it, what happens In
3: this one, uh, Castingway said very few words. They they asked him if he had anything to say, and I'm uh, not exact words, not verbatim, but he said something to the effect of, I guess not. Now, if you recall, that's the January 9 hearing, his initial hearing. That hearing went on for, if memory serves me correctly, somewhere around Seventeen, eighteen minutes, and he spoke a collective thirty-eight seconds worth of information. So, but Ralph, I mean,
1: some of some of well, what's interesting to me is the stark contrast from the initial hearing, where he's making up excuses and yeah. you know not to get into yeah. all of his details, but it was he minimized everything and blamed the officer, and then he yeah. comes into the second parole hearing, which I think is kind of sweet justice. He's a you know, shoulder to shoulder uniformed officers and his response, as Matt said, was obviously it's not much to say at this point, you know. it yeah. was no yeah. longer trying he's to outnumbered. Minimize. Right. Yeah. But how
0: Michelle, given given that that he's there up there making all these excuses and really doesn't have any remorse given that and his record, how how did they tell tell me, tell the audience how did they come to that decision in January in the first place? How the hell excuse my French did they come to that decision?
1: Well, I mean see the 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 thing about having my own law practice is I am one hundred percent free to say whatever I want. I think they made a huge mistake. I think they felt they listened to him and they made a mistake because he I heard, you know, it Matt shared with me that first hearing I heard what he said. That was not a man. I and I use the term "man" loosely. That was yes. remorseful. That had come to terms with what he did. That had taken responsibility. That had, um, in all those years, the best he could give is a, you know, I blaming the officer, and saying, you know, making up excuses about everything. And to me, that's not someone who should ever be paroled because clearly right. you're convicted of a crime. The evidence was, you know, conclusive at trial, and there's no there's no reason to think that he's not a threat to society. Um, so well, when I you, think when you say he
0: made a mistake, um, I mean – were, were there? I mean, I I've, I've watched a number of them on on Ctn. Um, they they want to know when they've been in prison. How many programs have they completed? You know, have they you know attended right. school? Have they done this? Have they, was there anything? Um, Matt, you, you you attended the one in in, um, in January as well?
3: No, no, absolutely not. We weren't even aware that it happened. Donna. Oh, that's, that's right,
0: that's, that's right. You weren't. I'm that sorry. was part of our well. What but I'm I think saying if I is, just
3: yeah. one, if I could add Go one ahead. more layer to what Michelle is saying, sure. Sure, I sure. think that I think that uh, the panel was poorly prepared, and I don't say that because they didn't receive information or they didn't have information available to them or they could not seek and obtain information. I, I do not believe that panel on January nine, two thousand fifteen, had reviewed. Yeah. Material that's available with regard to uh, previous conduct on the part of the inmate uh, prior to the murder, uh, the details of the murder, uh, his preparation while in prison, going to certain programs that would make him appropriate for uh, living in a free society. None of that was really explored. And I had heard in other meetings that I attended throughout the, the um subsequent 3 or 4 months leading up to the second hearing uh, some of these people sitting on the panel didn't have any of this information but the, yet the information was available because we saw it in the hands of the supervisor
1: yeah and in, wow. in addition there's there i've heard if you listen to the frankie resto parole hearings there's two one where he's denied parole about i think it's 5 months before he gets out and then one that he gets out the first one, the parole off the um, parole board is asking him pointed, I can't answer that word, questions and challenging him on things that he says, and really hold you know holding his yeah. feet to the oh. fire as to right really are you and should you be out in the community versus mm-hmm. the second parole hearing, you know what what exactly made you decide to do drugs like a very open ended and sweet like questions yeah. like throwing softballs and that's like there there's a way like the quest the answers he gave in January should have been mm-hmm. followed up with in intelligent questions based on the facts that they had available if they chose to challenging what he said challenging right. that information because we as as someone living on the outside world I want to know if people who committed murders who are maybe slated to get out have really come to terms with their behavior. And are they really, have they really, you know, earned to be free? You know, parole the par- privilege, not a right. So right. Well, I don't want someone who's going to ask those questions. And I didn't hear any of that when I listened to that first hearing at all. Mm-hmm. Well, is it is it really
0: the luck of the draw as to? I mean, I kind of think so with what happened with ours when we suddenly found a third person for the hearing when they said there was just going to be two. But is it the luck of the draw that you just get whoever is available for to, to uh, at any particular hearing I think for the hearing know, officers? Oh, is that oh, yeah. what it is, I- Jessica?
2: And I think it, it, yeah. even, it can extend, you know, all the way to, to even just our, our judges in the J.D.s and the G.A.s. It's it's luck of the draw sometimes, but, you know, you have people who are absolutely wonderful and you have people that aren't, um, and, and right. unfortunately that is, you know, that's the, the problem. You have people instead of you can't have robots in the criminal justice system because everybody's different. Um, you know, one of the hopes that you have to have sometimes is that everyone tries to be on the same page and follow the same guidelines. Yeah. Was
0: there a ripple effect in the survivors of homicide community with regard to what was going on with with this case, Jessica? What 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 were you hearing? What were you doing? Were you getting a lot of frantic calls, or what was going on?
2: Yeah. Um. You know, th- there there's always ripple effects when something like this happens. Um. I think people feel like, well, for the grace of God, that could be me. Um mm-hmm. and and there's always that fear that someone could get released or there could be a glitch or a paperwork error or something like that um you know again most of the most of the cases I work with, the sentences are extensive, but um you know on a lot You, you have that rush through where people are getting out, and that's if you're in people's minds um and that's mm-hmm. why going with what Michelle was talking about before, the importance of just putting out there how important registration is, how important it is because it's absolutely crucial people people unfortunately still have to be their own advocates sometimes to get the information that they need,
0: definitely, you're right, yeah, well,
2: um. Matt,
0: uh, you became involved in this in kind of a very unusual way. You did not, you you did not. I mean, after the the first hearing, uh, you did not hear through the normal channels, correct?
3: No, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, can you I would tell not us have, about that? Sure, I would not have known anything at all about the parole hearing on January ninth had it not been for uh, one of the killer's family members reaching out to me uh on my email address at the police department and
0: uh, the me going through my emails every day.
3: Ever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And okay. uh seeing in that subject line uh Castingway parole. And I opened it and, and to be right up front with you, I didn't know if I was being uh put on or if this was a legitimate email and the email simply stated, Gary Castingway is getting parole. How does this happen? And then the email went on with uh, some other details that I don't share uh, and uh, basically saying, look, even our own family is upset about this. We can't imagine what's happening to the Holcomb family. Now, I just responded back just simply, I don't know what you're referring to, but I will look into it and thank you. And, we immediately started in the PD. I had my executive sergeant start to try to make inroads with parole to find out if this was a legitimate uh, statement. Was he getting parole? And we were immediately hit with sort of a, if not a stone wall, we were diverted uh, several times before I actually got through to somebody willing to speak to me. Mhm.
0: And so then, so then, um, what what happened from there? Did, I mean, you were you were definitely entrenched in this at that point. Um, what was your plan uh, from there in terms of? Uh, were you trying to help, uh, like both fa- both sides of the family, both the the uh, perpetrator family and the victim family? Once you found out about this,
3: well, to, to be right up front about it, uh, my interest was in representing the memory of the slain officer uh, in the appropriate fashion. I think that's where my initial thoughts were, geez, uh, this isn't something that should happen to Robert's memory. And uh, my next step was to really verify, is he actually getting parole? And on a Friday evening, the supervisor was good enough to call me back, uh, you know, early evening. And uh, I picked up. And we had an hour-long conversation. To say that it was a friendly conversation would, would be inappropriate Uh, so we had a back and forth conversation which confirmed that he had been given parole the inmate had been given parole and I distinctly remember saying to the gentleman I was speaking to this isn't going to go over well so expect to hear from me again and um, Mm -hmm. I then got on the phone looking for relatives and it was very easy to find relatives because the Holcomb family are all over Plainville they're easily accessible Uh, They're very widely known. Uh, I know several members very well and speak to them regularly, if not several times throughout the year uh, before a couple of the family members who I was very conversant with had passed away actually recently, which was another part of the complex issue of notification. But uh, we meet every year at Robert's gravesite to have what we refer to as sharing a coffee with Robert uh, with his colleagues from the day and the new officers and anyone who wants to attend, the family members attend and it's it's a nice get together in memory of Robert. So the Holcombs are very, very much available.
0: So that's the elephant in the room. That's the thing that says, you know, there the, the parole board was trying to say, well, the initial people that signed up had had passed away or they had moved away or nobody had renewed the notification form, or whatever it was, and you're saying, as a police officer, and because he was a police officer, you would have had a lot more access to finding people or being from Plainville, and it just maybe part of it was laziness on on a lot of people's parts. Is that true? Well,
3: in this specific case, because the victim, uh, because the deceased was a police officer to me it's quite obvious that the police chief in the town where that officer served would have some insight as to how to get a hold of a colleague a family member etc but to go one step beyond that any any murder victim police officer civilian whomever how about a little civility how about a how about a reasonable effort to notify somebody
2: and i don't I don't mm-hmm, think yeah. you
3: saw that with this case i You know, I'm not bashful about saying that. I've said that to parole. Uh, You know, I've, I've dealt with a couple of very, very positive people in parole. And I think that the message gets diluted because no one wants to point to anyone and say, you failed to do your job. But I've said this openly at meetings, and I've said this openly in the public. If I had underperformed to the level that they did, I would have been, I would have been it, the the uh, performance issue would have been addressed in some fashion, you know this whole this whole aspect of who's to blame, it's all of these issues really start from the top down, and this should mm-hmm. not happen to anyone. I, I I sometimes run the risk of coming across as though well because this was a police officer I truly don't feel that way. Uh, any human being. Should have the civility to be able to reach out and make a reasonable effort to notify someone, because it's been drummed into our head that victim involvement in parole is a right. This is what this mm-hmm. is what's been pumped into my head from uh, parole and pardon, uh, pardons board. And, and so, if you look at it through that lens, then make a reasonable effort to notify someone. Right. And Amen.
0: However,
3: <laughs> initially
0: that. Any victim advocate worth, worth their salt would have said, "Oh, they're a police officer." I mean, we, you know, they, they, we, we have other other means to try to find these people. I mean, I know that. That's what I do every single day, both in my paid job and other jobs. It's, it's about connecting with people. It's about thinking out of the box to try to solve a problem. And it just yes. seems like. A lot of times people don't don't go the extra mile there, but and I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask too. Had had Robert Holcomb not been a police officer, and this occurred, do you think it would have been as high profile or the out the what what would have changed if anything, Michelle? What do you think about that? Just because this person happened to be a, a police officer, maybe it got more publicity and it was more high profile. But had it been John Q. Public, had it been my father's case, would it have had caused as much of a
1: splash <laughs> as it did? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's two things. You know, one is the chief of police made yes. a concerted effort to find out what happened, and, you know, in the conversations we have had, it's clear to me he would not he was like a dog with a bone. He would not let it go. He <laughs> he was going to fix it. Good. And that mm-hmm. that that makes a difference. It really does. And he yes. has he has um a little bit of power to him, right? When he calls yeah. people and says, "What are you doing?" So I think that that really made a difference. Is someone in a position of authority was calling other people on the behalf of this particular victim's family. It, it does. It's a little different because it's a police officer, but it also made a difference because he he did what he did. And, and I think that's really important. But I also think that, um, I, I mean, I've talked to Matt many times, and I think because this was his first lens through the parole system, and it happened to be a police officer that this was a, his response. But I do believe that his response would have been, I just need to say that it's the same had it been any other yeah. victim's family because that that's clear to me. But I really think that when this happens, a lot of times, you know, the victim's family find out afterwards, right? And they're completely devastated. They feel like the system doesn't care. And you know what they do? They just hunker down and... Put their heads down, and just get back to trying to live one day one minute at a time, and mm-hmm. they because there was this other energy that kind of came in and and made of made their voice known you know on top of the victim's family, I think it, it made a difference because a lot of i I'm one hundred percent sure this isn't the only family this has happened to, but of those families which of them know? that they have a right to say, hey, what are you doing? We had a right to be there. This needs to be turned around. And that's why this case is so important, one, because we got justice for the officer and his family, but two, because it sends a message to other victims that when this system wrongs you, there are remedies. And, they, you know, if they can reverse a parole hearing, think about what else they could do when victims' rights are violated. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it it's really powerful. Go ahead.
3: But I, I'd also like to interject that because there were so many other people in, on the team, so to speak, that had such heartfelt involvement, whether through direct contact with Robert or direct contact with any number of people who had shown interest in the case. I mean, our state's attorney was phenomenal uh, in, in uh, drumming up support, in digging up information and writing letters and bringing to bear Uh, information about the specifics of the case. Uh, We had connections such as Michelle and uh, Michelle giving me Mm -hmm. good guidance and and basically free counsel as far as, uh, you know, what what happens and doesn't happen. Because being that this was my first time dealing with that entity within the state government, uh, you need somebody who knows the ins and outs of it. There were other people that wanted to remain nameless who were in the system. People from the boards of pardon and parole calling me and saying to me, Hey, whatever it is you're doing, you're doing it right. So, I mean, we were, there was a, there was a light being shed on the So you actually
0: that got, go. got kudos from, from, from that agency, even though
3: they probably oh, oh, yes. were
0: totally embarrassed, wanted to bury their heads and not say mm-hmm. anything. Most, that's, most definitely. That's, Oh, that's great. You know, so actually, so just to let our audience know the outcome of this parole hearing, the second one in March, and just to let people know, in terms of the timeline, the first one was January something this year, and then it was rescinded. My notes say March 25th. Is that right? So all That's of this collective uh, uh, bargaining with people and and back and forth and collaborating and good work, it all happened in the space of like two months, January. Well, three months, whatever, yeah, two and a half right. months. That's an, so anyway, th- so this perpetrator is still incarcerated for what five years? Just like that's the standard, right, Michelle? Yeah. And
1: so they come up I, again. I don't know specifically for that case, but it's usually five yeah, years. Yeah,
0: it, it's five. It the the newspaper article I read said five years. So it, it it what in the
3: hearing as well done?
0: Five years, yeah. So what is the um, what have you heard from the families? I mean, they they did. They were very articulate and and they really uh, you know expressed how they felt well in during the hearing and whatnot. but have you heard Matt, have you heard from any of them since since the hearing oh. or what what are the, oh, what are their plans or has this inspired them to do something else or get involved, or they just want to go back to their lives and come back five years later?
3: No, I, I don't think so. I think especially the family spokesperson, Maria Weinberger, she's in touch with me very frequently and, uh, and regularly. and uh, We have a friendship and a, uh, a connection, and uh, my thoughts about what her involvement will be in the future is to continue to uh, try to make some inroads into how this whole process works, how notification works. I think she's uh, very much interested in what's going to happen five years out, but I think she also has sort of a holistic view of, you know, what she would like to see in the notification process <laughs> specifically, uh, in, yeah. in the parole process in general. So they're they're very active. I mean, the son, uh, the the uh, widow, everybody's very active in this. This is this is something that Great. you can't really explain uh, the full depth of their involvement. I mean, they're not. They're not people who just shrink away. They yeah. they are involved, well, and they're you know they're right there if you need them. Uh
0: huh. Well, we have, just to let you know, I have a couple more. We have like about eight minutes left to our show. It's just flying by because we're having so much fun here. At least I am. <laughs> um, with respect to, I want to ask each of you to get your opinion. How can we make an effective change with this situation that will not that will not take forever, and given given that it's state government, and I, I can't be too critical because I'm a state government worker. <laughs> I <do> my <laughs> job; it was for a while longer. But Michelle worked for state government. I I've been working for uh, for uh, 15 years, so I certainly know the ropes there. What is it? Um, okay, Jessica, why don't you why don't you take it first? What do you think would be an effective change that we could do that wouldn't take forever i know we have certain things down the road and things that you're going to recommend to the governor correct
2: yeah, um, there, there are some recommendations that we're going to be putting forward within the next few months, um, and I think that the ones that I've been the most actively supporting is pushing for every courthouse and the court service center to have a victim information center, that anything related to Ooh. notification, compensation, anything related to mad survivors of homicide, anything related to counseling services, we want to have a central place in each courthouse where they can go get this information that's just for them. I mean like a or
0: something exactly exactly
2: An or a kiosk. i you know at this point we'd be happy with a kiosk with the little plastic things you put brochures in at this point um, some courthouses have places set up already but not all of them do so one of the things we would like to have in place is so that every courthouse has this um, something mm-hmm. else that we're also looking to do is when Judges read through the victim's rights before court day every morning. We're hoping to add another line to that that would um, advise them about notification and registration and, seven and how to get notified and to let them know about the informational kiosk at the courthouse. So we're looking to put together a little line to add that into the beginning of um, what the judge says uh-huh. every day in court. Um, we're, we're just really trying to push the outreach right now. We want you know, everyone to be on the same page all the victims' organizations to be on the same page to make sure that, you know, everyone's getting compensation information, everyone's getting, you know, um, everyone's getting registration notifications. Something else we've been trying to push, too, is getting something started for minor children, um, especially of the deceased, because um, especially as we've seen in this case, it's the children that are most often going to be the ones that are going to be notified as the years go on. And right. a lot of times information can be lost because they're underage. That information isn't being gathered. So something else that has been um, going around is getting something situated, mm-hmm. secure, a way to keep underage children's contact information available so they can be tracked.
0: Yeah. Well, those those sound like some very practical suggestions. Michelle, what do you
1: think? How much time do I have? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, you're you I mean I guess a you're couple of things invited on another show, Michelle. We only have four minutes, forty eight seconds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think I
1: got a couple of things. I think there needs to be a checklist of places that the parole board because just I'll limit it to the parole board right now. Places the parole board will look for victim notification uh connections when they don't have a registered victim or the the
2: Oh, the notification
1: good idea on sale, mm-hmm. and and they need to start that process if not a year, six months beforehand. Because if they start that yeah. process thirty five days beforehand, hoping to get notification yeah. to a victim in thirty days, like I can tell you, in my job, like thirty days from now, my calendar is full for the next month. Like there there may be stuff that I can't move, and this is something that's important to me. So I would say start notification a year to six months in advance, because you know right. who's coming down the pike. And mm-hmm. there should be a checklist. Like if the if the victim was a corrections officer, a police officer, or some kind of um, civil servant, that you would contact that that location and see right. if there's a contact. I mean, this would have been a simple phone call to the chief. Listen, we our contact is failed. Do you have a noti- he found notification? In like a few, like a few easy, quick checks. Like they need to. Right. It needs to be. Imperative. It's not and,
0: science, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, maybe it's time we look back at the statute for victims' rights, and if you violate a victim's rights, there's a consequence, because right now there isn't any, you know. And if people knew, I mean, unfortunately, we have that um, Pavlov's dog kind of response. If people know there's a consequence to not doing notification rights, Maybe mm-hmm. then this wouldn't happen. Michelle, it's my number one oh. goal. <laughs> oh, I think that's that's
0: so excellent. I I love that idea. I love all of them. We'll have to do a whole other show on your ideas. Matt, what do you what what would you, you like to add to this? List,
3: I, list? Just think, <laughs> I just think very quickly, let's not work so hard to take the human touch out of public service. It is still a doing profession. Any of these uh, areas we're talking about, police, parole, victim's advocate, up and down the line in public service. Let's not work so hard to take the human uh, touch out of it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I Absolutely. think that's so important. It's not just a matter of, you know, pushing papers. You need real people, as Michelle said right. in right. in the beginning. It is, it is so very important. And uh, you have a standing offer, all of you, to come back to do another show on another topic because I think you've all been wonderfully compelling and, and this is going to be one of our best shows I know and it's so uh, information packed so I so appreciate it unfortunately you know uh, there there's so many bad things that happen in life but out of bad things good things come like shows like this so that out of this horrific experience for this family w others coming, coming after them can learn you know that's what I want to say and um, just right before we close, Jessica, quickly, can you tell us regarding because we do have so many people in, um, in, Harp, in the Hartford area in Connecticut that are in survivors of homicide? Tell us about your, your fundraiser for the, the golf tournament that's very crucial.
2: Oh, yes. Our biggest fundraiser of the year is coming up. It's going to be on Saturday, July 25th, and it's going to be at Blue Fox Run Golf Course that's in Avon. I believe it's on 65 Nod Road in Avon. Um, it's $100 a person, includes 18 holes of golf, and we feed you twice, and uh, you get to have a great day. We're going to have music and raffles, and all of the proceeds go directly back to our membership. Nothing um, that we raise for money goes towards administrative expenses, and it's always a great time.
0: And and how can they get in touch with you about that fundraiser or survivors of homicide?
2: You can always visit our website and it's www.survivorsofhomicide.com. Um, you can also contact us by phone at 860-257-7388 and we have a Facebook page if you search for Survivors of Homicide of Connecticut.
0: That's great. Um Michelle, you want to give out any contacts?
1: I'll give you my phone number. It's 860-415-6529. And from there, you can find me. You can always find me. Okay.
0: And, and, and Matt, we're going to keep in touch, too. If people would like to get in contact him. with you, how do they do it?
3: i at the Plainville Police Department uh, at 860-747-1616. And you can get me there Monday through Friday. And if it's important, they'll get me on Saturday and Sunday.
0: All right. Well, will you promise to come back?
3: Oh, well, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. Okay. it's nice to well, make your
1: acquaintance.
0: That's, that's great. Well, we're going to have to close out this hour of Shattered Lives. So I thank all of you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you. And it's wonderful to, to, to know you and you be part of the Shattered Lives family now. So everyone, I'm saying good good evening. And uh, we'll see you next week on Shattered Lives for another edition.